Well, we missed being with you the last two Sundays. I, I can tell you, I thought about you. It was easy being five hours ahead uh, to think about you and uh, heard great things about last Sunday, Youth Sunday, and just the job that Elijah and all the youth did. So way to go. It's, it's great being able to be away and just know that everything is in such good hands. Um, as we begin a new study this summer in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Chris talked about this two weeks ago, and uh, there are several avenues that are available to you to gain the most of what we're going to be doing. Uh, the first is to read the Gospel of Luke, along with so many of us. Uh, there's not a lot of reading every day, and so I think everybody can manage the load there. Uh, and then we encourage you to do some reflecting as what you're reading and uh, to journal, to write down what are you seeing and how does this apply to your life. The reading plan is going to be published each week in the Knollwood News. You can get that on email, and if you haven't got lined up to do that, just go to our website, knoll.org, and you can click there and, and get on our, our weekly email list. Uh, or you can just go to our website and, and click on News, and you'll be able to see the reading plan for that coming week. And then finally, on Wednesday nights, we're meeting together over in the Fellowship Center uh, as a community, and it's a time for you to just share what you're learning and what you're seeing in the text. It's also a time for some teaching on things that you, uh, that you read that last week, as well as an opportunity to ask any questions. So this is kind of a, a wide-open thing. If you're reading in the text and something is just bugging you or you can't figure it out, I'm not telling you that we can figure it out, but at least we'll raise the question together and we'll deal with it. And then Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking ahead. So in our reading plan, as you look at what you'll be reading this coming week, I'll always be speaking on Sunday morning on some part of the gospel account looking ahead. And so that's, that's, that's where we're headed in. Uh, today, we're going to go early in the life of Jesus, really at the very beginning almost of his life. Um, uh, there, there, there are two encounters in Jerusalem that I want us to look at in, in, in the Gospel of Luke today. Two encounters that follow Joseph and Mary's obedience to the requirements of the Old Testament law. Uh, having followed the law's requirement of circumcision, where Jesus receives his name formally, uh, Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem to perform two other very important rites as required under the law. The first is called the redemption of the firstborn. And this is what was established according to the law that the firstborn, whether it would be human or cattle, was sacred to God. And in recognition of God graciously giving life, uh, this one was set aside especially for God's use. Uh, but then there's a little twist to that. Look at this from Numbers chapter 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. What God did is he selected an entire tribe out of the Israelites, the Levites, to serve him. And so they performed all of the temple duties in place of the firstborn. And so uh, there's something else that happens. All the parents of non-Levite firstborn then were required to pay a redemption fee. They were required to redeem that firstborn. And uh, so look at the instructions that are given here to Aaron, the head of the Levitical priest from Numbers 18. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they shall offer to the Lord, shall be yours. 
Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver according to the shekel of the, of the sanctuary. So there's a little ceremony, and in this, and in this ceremony, uh, the father brought the child to the priest. The mother was not obligated to attend, but she often did. And the priest took the child and held the child in his arms while the father gave the priest five shekels to redeem that child. And then that child was given back to the father. So think about this. Isn't it ironic that the one who would be the redeemer, whose very life would be the redemption price for our salvation, also was redeemed according to the requirements of the law. What symbolism there is here that Jesus is identified with those whom he came to save. The apostle Peter would write so much later in his first epistle, speaking of the believer, saying, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood. The word in the Greek language means costly, expensive, the costly blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The redemption of the firstborn. There's another ceremony, another rite that they performed according to the law, and it was called the purification after childbirth. The law declared that a woman who had just given birth could not enter the temple, nor could she perform in any religious ceremonies. Uh, she couldn't enter the temple for 40 days if the child was a boy, 80 days if the child was a girl. And again, that's the culture of that day. At the end of the period of time, she had to bring to the lamb, bring to the temple a lamb for a burnt offering and also a young pigeon for a sin offering. Now, the law made provision that if the person, if the woman could not afford the lamb, she could bring an additional pigeon, two pigeons. It became known as the offering of the poor. This is what Mary brought. By the way, little side note, that's why I don't think the wise men have arrived yet at Bethlehem with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. She surely could have afforded the full sacrifice. And so she brings what was the sacrifice of the poor. But these two rituals tell us something about Mary and Joseph. They, they tell us that, that they took the commands of God seriously. They had, they had put themselves under obedience to the law as God called every Israelite to do. They also fulfilled their parental responsibilities. They were doing what was expected of them as religious people, as parents. It also tells us some things about Jesus. First of all, it tells us something about his identification with those whom he came to save. Paul writes to the Galatians and says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then there's this relationship that Jesus has to the law. That became a, a real point of contention, and we'll see that in our study of Luke, a point of contention between him and the other religious leaders of the day. But Jesus himself said this about the law. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It's 
So we learn some things real early on here about Jesus and the way that we see him relating to that. Now, Mary and Joseph went to the temple. And while they're at the temple, they have two encounters. And the first one is they encounter a man by the name of Simeon. We don't know much about him. He apparently is an elderly gentleman. He's seen a lot of history that's happened to his beloved Israel. He was probably just a boy when the Romans took control of Palestine some 60 years before. And so he's lived through some very difficult days in his life and in his nation. And yet with all of that, what we see about him is that he is a man of hope. And when I look at the text, I see several things about him. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. When I have your Bible with you or your personal device that you've got the Bible on, or if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1090. Luke chapter 2. So of the several things that we see about him, the first that I notice about him is reverent living. Look in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke writes, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Luke says that Simeon was a righteous man. It simply means that he was in right standing before God. And then he adds that he was, he was devout. The word basically means pious, uh, reverencing God. But these two things suggest that Simeon was a man who trusted God to bring about what Israel was in such desperate need of. It also shows a man who has a deep reverence for God. And I think this is, this is probably why the third thing is true of them. He was influenced by the Holy Spirit. He, he, there's, a, there's this receptivity to spiritual things, to the things of God. And with the assurance of God that he would see the Christ, I wonder if Simeon went to the temple every day, fully assured that what God had promised, he would deliver. And uh, I just, I'm just thinking that his days are probably full of prayer, uh, uh, of looking and waiting. He's expecting and all of that. The second thing that I notice about Simeon is confident hoping. Do you notice God told him that he would not die until he had seen the Christ? Now, how long before he'd been given this hope? We really don't know. The text does not reveal that to us. I suspect it's been a lengthy time. That, that there's this gap of time. And so here is Simeon exercising biblical faith in confident hoping. I mean, faith is described this way in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this is why we know that God was pleased with Simeon. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So here is Simeon confidently hoping. What's he hoping for? 
We're told it's the consolation of Israel, the consoling, the comforting, the relief that the Messiah would bring to his people. And I'm wondering if the words of Isaiah the prophet often entered into his mind from Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So here's this guy going to the temple day after day, waiting and hoping that today would be the day that God would show up. I think there's a third thing that characterized Simeon, and that's expectant waiting. That's the one thing we can say as we look at Simeon. He was expectant. Expectancy must surely have been a part of the life of the German priest, who was asked why he always removed his hat when he taught catechism to the children of lowly minors. His answer was that he never knew who might be among those children one might change the world. Do you know who his most famous pupil was? Martin Luther. Expectancy. It's a powerful emotion, a powerful fact in our lives. And this is Simeon. Simeon is ever, ever ready for God to reveal the Christ. And so he waits with hope. He waits with, with faith. And there are several things we can say about this waiting. He waited reverently. God gave the promise, and Simeon believed that God would deliver. Don't you think as every year passed that he at least would have been tempted to give up? To wonder if maybe he'd heard the wrong message? He just didn't get it clear, but he didn't. He didn't give up. He didn't lose hope. That so easily happens to people, doesn't it? He waited faithfully. Uh, here is this guy. Simeon comes to the temple, eyes searching the crowd all the time, wondering, is this the one? Is this the one? Is that the one? I wonder if the story of the Old Testament came to his mind ever. Remember when Samuel the prophet was sent to, to anoint a new king for Israel? And he went to the house of Jesse and Jesse parades before him as firstborn, and Samuel thinks, that's got to be the one. He's a big strapping kid. This has got to be the one. And God said, no, I look on the inside. Well, you look on the outside. Well, then it's got to be the secondborn. Secondborn comes by, and the thirdborn, the fourthborn. Finally, get down to the runt. David, this is the one. And God says to Samuel, that's the one. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in Jerusalem as well. But maybe by way of application, don't we so often get our minds preset in how we think God's going to work? And then he surprises us. He comes in a different way. But Simeon doesn't seem to fall into this trap. And so he waits receptively. And when God says this is the one, he was ready to receive the message. He was ready to respond. And so we see in Simeon this spiritual receptivity that's such a, such a quality that every one of us should desire. Um, his spiritual ears were ready to hear. Look at the text, verse 27. He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. He was ready. He was ready to hear. 
And then he waited obediently. When the Holy Spirit pointed to the Messiah, Simeon was ready to act. And he did. He was obedient. And look at the reward of his faithful watch. Verse 29, as he blesses God and says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simon blessed God. It's a wonderful word in Scripture. It simply means to eulogize or to speak well of. And so Simeon speaks well of God. He must have been so overwhelmed with gratitude and with thankfulness that God had now answered his prayer. And God was now bringing the consolation of Israel into play. And Simeon accepts his release. He says to the Lord, my life is over. My life is complete. I can die in peace. He was ready to do that. But he does one other thing. He goes on to declare the Messiah's salvation. And what a glorious mission it is. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Now, if you happen to be another observant Jew standing around and heard Simeon say this, what would you have thought? Gentiles? You've got to be kidding me. But see, it shouldn't have been surprising to anybody knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. But as we'll see in our study of the Gospel of Luke, the religious leaders failed over and over again to grasp the understanding of their own word. The prophet Isaiah speaks about God saying to Israel, 700 years before the Messiah came, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. From the very beginning, it was a universal opportunity. But the religious leaders, as we'll notice, have failed over and over again. And Simeon says that Jesus is going to live a turbulent life. Look at verse 33. His father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Simeon predicts that Jesus will, was destined to cause the falling and the rising of many. In other words, he's going to upset the status quo. And as we look at his life and ministry, that's exactly what he does. He honors the children, not honored in that culture. Uh, he reaches out to the downtrodden, to the disconsolate. Uh, he reaches out to social outcasts, so counter, uh, so counter to everything that's done in that culture. And meanwhile, the religious leaders who pride themselves about being better than most stand on the outside looking in. This would be the Messiah who would, who would just upset the apple cart. And Simeon then concludes that Jesus will have a painful end, 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so many thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's a prophecy Mary is going to literally see fulfilled as she stands at the foot of the cross and sees the sword that pierces the side of her own son and it pierces her side in that way. How ironic, this whole story. A lamb she could not afford to present to the temple. But the lamb of God who would save the world, she brings into life. 
What an amazing story. In fact, Wednesday night at our, at our fellowship time and time of discussion uh, next door, we're going to talk about Mary, and I'm going I'm to take us into the text and, and talk about how we ought to look and how we ought to view her today. Well, Simeon looked with eager anticipation. There must have been a stirring in his heart and mind every day. Is this the day? What Simeon did is he arranged his life his focus, his ambition, uh, everything around this coming of Messiah. But now, in time-space history, we're past that. Jesus has come. We're not looking forward to a day of redemption as Simeon did. But there is another coming. There is another coming. And that coming is going to be in two stages. First of all, it's in what we call the rapture of the church where Jesus is going to return. And he's going to take all those believers who are alive and the dead in Christ are going to be raised and they're going to be with him. Uh, Then there's another stage of his coming and that will be for judgment. It won't be for redemption. And he will come with his angels and he will establish justice and righteousness on earth and he will judge those who have not believed in him. And so this reality, this certainty of his return really ought to be the focus of our lives just like the first coming was to Simeon. There's some amazing instructions that Paul gives to Timothy, I'm sorry, to Titus back in the first century. Just look at this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now here's the linkage. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have to be watchful people as Simeon was. But ours is not watchful for his first coming, but really for his second coming and for him coming to get us. Simeon believed that what God has promised he would do. I think the question for us is, the Bible says he's coming back again. Do we believe it? And if we believe it, what impact does it have in our lives that we're living? Does it matter that he is coming back? Well, there's another person whom Mary and Joseph encounter in Jerusalem, and it's a woman by the name of Anna. If we go to the text, chapter 2, verse 36, we read, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, biblical scholars differ on how they deal with Anna's age. There are many, uh, and I probably would lean this way, who believe that the text says that she was a widow for 84 years. Now, if that's true, then add the 84 to the seven years married and then perhaps another 13 years because that's probably the age at which she was married and Anna was probably 104 years old. Yeah, I'm just letting that sink in just a little bit. Now, as to what she's praying for, 
I would guess it's the same thing that Simeon was praying for, the consolation of Israel, that God would come and redeem his people as he had promised. She would have known of the promises of the coming Messiah through the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, She was waiting for God to favor his people with the promised Christ. And God, like, like with Simeon, gave her recognition that this child brought by Mary and Joseph was the promised one. I wish we could put ourselves in her shoes and feel what she must have felt at that time. And she begins to speak about him. And again, I'm wondering about all the people that are standing around listening in to what she is saying. What even the impact this must have had on Mary and Joseph in their lives. Well, after that encounter, Luke tells us the family returns home. Look on at verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And that's all we have of the record of Jesus until he's 12 years old. And that's another story. I have some thoughts as I wrap up this morning. You know, there are both similarities and differences in these two encounters. Both Simeon and Anna gave thanks to God for the child. The text says that Simeon blessed God. It says that Anna gave thanks to God. But in both, there was a recognition and an acknowledgement that before them was God's gift and the fulfillment of the promise of a Messiah. We see that in both their lives. What's different is that Simeon's focus is on Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary. Only by happenstance uh, would there be people around that would hear what he had to say. Now, we just don't know. The biblical record doesn't. I imagine there were, but the focus seems to be Godward and then secondarily to Mary and Joseph. On the contrary, Anna specifically addresses those standing around her. Did you notice that? Look at verse 38 again. Coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She is evangelistic in what she is doing. And she's talking now to anybody that's around there. There's something else that struck me about Simeon and Anna. They were faithful over the long haul. These are old people. I'm more and more identifying with them. These are are old people here. Uh, Both were aged, but both were obedient, following after God and his promises. They really typify, uh, to me, the title of a Eugene Peterson book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. They'd not got discouraged by God's delay. They didn't give up. They both trusted in God's promise. They trusted that he would show up when he decided to show up. And what a great quality that we see in these two people. And may I suggest to you what a great need that is for you and me today? That in the up and downs of life, we would be about consistent discipleship. Obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in there. Um, Peterson writes, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in which earlier generations of Christians called holiness. 
The Apostle Paul ends his comments about God's promise of resurrection in 1 Corinthians with this exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Commit to a long obedience in the same direction. All the way to the end. It will not be in vain. One last thing about these two people that Mary and Joseph encounter in Jerusalem. And this one just struck me as I was, as I was thinking and looking at the text. Um, and that's this. They stayed active their whole lives. Even in their later years. There's a tendency of people, even in the church, as we get older, tempted to withdraw from active service. It's sort of like, well, I've done my time. It's time for the next generation, you know, to serve their time kind of thing. We don't see that in Scripture. Age is never a determining criteria for service for Christ. You're never too old to serve, nor are you ever too young to serve. But may I say to those of us that are aging a bit here that... um, our most productive time of service might just be in the later years because of our experience, because our faith has been tested and tried over difficult times, uh, because we've seen God faithful, because God wants us to encourage the next generation to be faithful as well. Um, You know, we've seen God's faithfulness in our lives and we need to be involved in other people's lives to that end. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Commit to discipleship, to a long obedience in the same direction, to becoming increasingly a committed follower of Christ, not giving up during the hard times. And they will be there, I'll tell you. But don't give up. Um, Serve him however and wherever he wants you to do. That's, That's what the Christian life is. It's a life of discipleship. It's not easy but it's rewarding. And this is what God calls each of us to, in our own way, whatever that might be. Anna wasn't out there beating drums. She was praying constantly. Simeon, we don't know, but they were faithful in the long haul. And I think that's what God calls each of his children to, including us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for these two encounters, for Anna, for Simeon. Thank you for the lives that they demonstrate to us that uh, is a life of faithfulness to you. And uh, thank you for using them uh, in the life of Mary and Joseph to, to affirm Jesus as Messiah. Thank you for how you can use them in our lives as we look at them as examples of people that you desire to use to the end of our lives. Lord, may we be found faithful to do whatever it might be. Maybe for someone it's just being a prayer warrior. For other, Lord, it's, it's more active service in different ways. But might we be people that would be obedient to you, serving you with glad hearts in all of our days. And so to that end, we commit ourselves to you for a new week that lies before us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.